0: Historic monster, the Japanese call Godzilla, has just walked out of Tokyo Bay.
1: We begin the attack on Earth now. We persuaded the thing to help you, with what little power it has left. They're going
2: to control you now. And welcome to episode 92 of the Kaiju Cast, a bi monthly podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber suited foes. My name is Kyle, and I'm flying solo because actually, what we're going to be doing this episode is playing a very old interview that we did back in April uh, when Jeff and I were at Monster Palooza down in Burbank, California. We interviewed Steve Rifle, the author of Japan's Favorite Monstar, the unauthorized biography. ...of the Big G. Um, it was a very long interview, like like over an hour, actually. So we are going to go ahead and start things off with some requests. And because uh, we're going to play this interview, basically we're going to do the requests, then the interview... ...and then move right into the news, because, oh boy, do we have news. So here's what we're going to play. We're going to play Ultraman Leo's theme song for Ben by Toru Fuyuki. And then we're going to follow that up with Godzilla vs. Gabra by Kunio Miyauchi... That is for Samson, and while it might not be the version that Samson asked for, it's the only one of that that I had, then we'll play Search March, that is for Rich, and that's performed by the Bukimisha Weird Secret Society. Monster and Jeff and I are sitting down with author and Godzilla enthusiast and film historian Steve Rifle. Steve, how's it going, sir? Thanks for uh, inviting me up to uh, your lair. <laughs>
1: yes, <laughs> our, our dungeon up here. Yeah. Well, um, well,
2: we are
0: at Monster Palooza. Welcome to Burbank, by the way. I know oh, you're from you. out of town and uh, we're across the street. Uh, the, the thing that uh, the, you can get an autograph here from everybody from Danny Glover to Ginger Lynn. And that's quite a spectrum. There, there's a little something for everybody. I think the most scary person I saw wandering around was Ron Jeremy, though. I have to say, yeah, I just wandered past. Holy moly! I mean, no offense to all you pornography fans, but <laughs> wow.
1: Uh, hey, he must be a monster fan, right? Or he's here to pick yeah, up, or he's I here know, to I, pick I,
0: up some chicks. More power to him. One of, One of the two. One of the two. Yeah, for anyway. sure. That's 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 as far as we go with that. But
1: well, thanks, Steve, for joining us. Sure, thank I you. I know, it's a uh, busy con. Do you have anything planned that you want to see
0: today here? I must make a, a horrible confession, and that is I don't think I'm going to be able to attend the event that I was most planning to, and looking forward to seeing, which is the, um, the Ultraman panel. Oh, yeah. Because my son made the All-Star game, and I'd be a real... <laughs> he, that'd be yeah, you know that'd what be if i didn't show up for the all-star game this afternoon so. well
2: the good news is we're gonna record it and you can you oh, can listen to it
0: from the show thank you that would be nice yeah. thank you
2: just for you man <laughs> i appreciate <laughs> the thought so uh for those uh listening who are not familiar with steve rifle steve you wrote a book called japan's favorite monster wonderful title Unauthorized. yes uh, the unauthorized biography of the big g
0: another wonderful concession to sub legalities sub yeah
2: and uh you have also more recently worked on the documentary known as bringing godzilla down to size
0: thank you for mentioning that and
2: yes. uh well both of us i mean i love that documentary very much i'm f- proud
0: of it too i think we accomplished a lot for you know f- based on the the original idea that ed and i came up with and then what it ended up being it was because you know we collaborated with some really amazing people i mean norman first and foremost but um um i mean it was a great experience i'm very proud of it and i only wish that there was some way i could get more people to see it because a lot of people just aren't even aware of it i mean it was buried
2: yeah it's a was extra feature on the Rodan disc. Right. I mean, uh, the, 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 there's some people who have said it's
0: it's a non sequitur, that it doesn't belong there because the title is... It's not about Godzilla so much as it's about the genre. We you put yeah. Godzilla in the title so that you'd immediately know what this is about. Yeah. But it's not about the history of Godzilla so much as it's about the history of the genre in, with a particular uh, emphasis on the handmade... Special effects techniques And it's supposed to You know Give you a little bit Of an insight Into the The mind Set And the life Of these craftsmen You know Particularly focusing On the arc Of this one gentleman Named Mr. Uh, Yasuyuki Inoue Who was uh, Eiji, Tsuburaya, Eiji Tsuburaya's Art director For a long time So um, I mean I don't I'm not aware Of another documentary Japanese or American That That does anything Like that And um, The problem Was that Um you know, we had to agree to a lot of uh, restrictions, and not just on the content of the film. Uh, well, in order to secure uh, the the rights to use the footage and all of those stills, um, not only did we have to pay a significant portion of our very small production budget to to Toho for that right, but we also had to agree to some limitations on where and how it could be shown. I mean, we had a premiere... When the film was first uh, about to be released on DVD, uh, we had a premiere at the Egyptian Theater. Uh, it was amazing. It was it was really fun. I mean, cool. you know, to see it, it was digitally projected, but it looked fantastic. And you know, the the sound was actually mixed uh we spent a little bit of extra money uh, when we were almost out of money it was at the you know tail end of uh post-production but we decided to kick in we actually dug into our pockets a little bit right to spend a little extra money to have a theatrical sound mix uh hoping you know against hope that we'd be able to show this thing in film festivals and and in theaters around uh around the country and but to date it's only been uh, shown at Officially, anyway, at ah. the Egyptian Theater, the American Cinematheque in Hollywood, uh, that was our premiere night, which is great.
1: And then, did you uh, have a good turnout for that? We did. And-
0: we actually got uh, covered on. Um, there's a KPCC, which is one of the the local NPR stations here in town, has a weekly uh, LA news magazine called Off Ramp, and they covered it. the The they they interviewed me about uh, for about ten minutes about the movie. The the guy who hosts the show is kind of a Godzilla fan. Oh, so nice. he's you know he's interviewed Keith Aiken about certain things uh, several years before that, and uh so whenever something comes up in in uh, about Godzilla that he can legitimately cover, he does. Oh, that's cool. It's really cool. It's good. But anyway, I think based on that show, we got a pretty good turnout that night. And it was just fun to to get a chance to to you know expose a wider audience to it because. You know, the initial plan The reason we produced the, the documentary In the first place Was uh, because Classic Media uh, Was planning to uh, And they eventually did uh, Repackage all of those Godzilla DVDs In a boxed set The original plan was to have An additional disc of new special features That, that uh, bringing Godzilla down the, To size would be the the um, Basically the cornerstone of You know, it would basically be have, It would be its own standalone feature with some smaller you know so doc- features and yeah like so maybe some uh, documentary featurettes or whatnot so that was the reason that we uh, were able to convince them to give us you know almost fifty thousand dollars to make this thing in, in the first place um, and then some things happened a succession of events all of which i can't re- exactly remember now it's been a number of years but One of them was that the company was was acquired by another company. Oh, okay. And so, and the new owners of the company um, did not view the Godzilla uh, line of merchandise in the same way that the the previous owners did. The classic
2: media had. They basically got, they acquired. Uh, whatever Saperstein... they bought, the, they bought
0: the rights to the Saperstein uh, lib- or uh, titles, and then there were some other ones that they acquired as well Godzilla Raids again and and Ghidorah. Mm-hmm. The, you know, those came from different, uh, uh, you know, places. But, um, but, but Classic Media is a, you know, not a big company, or it's bigger now, I guess. I don't know, I haven't been dealing with them lately. I don't know what their current state of affairs is, but, um, but, you know, prior to the Godzilla, um, series, they had almost exclusively distributed children's, uh, programming, children's right, content. Right. Yeah. And and even though they had something, like, they had the Rankin Bass, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which is, you know, undisputably a classic, you know, in, of children's, uh, entertainment, children's animation. And, but they didn't treat any of their content, any of their releases as classic films, or they, they basically just, Put it out there in the market Right Quickie releases Yeah I mean They, 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 they did a decent job On some of their their uh, Releases But they weren't This is the kind of thing That we, you know So so when we came in They kind of brought us in And I say we It was basically Ed Myself And, and Keith And we, we all had Different roles in this But they kind of brought us Aboard as consultants right. When they first uh, Decided to To release these films um, And they just kind of Picked our brains And asked us you know how would you do this and how would you do that and then they would turn around and do it a different way most of the time but 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 our whole uh, uh you know the thing that we kept you know trying to um, uh impart to them over and over again was that these films have never really been released in in the right way. Right. You know, we 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 strongly encourage them to do the, to to release both the, the uncut Japanese version and the American edits and then we would get questions like, "Well, why? What's the big deal? You know, what's mm-hmm. the difference? Why should we release two versions of the same film?" Well, so then we'd have to kind of like educate them or, or you know, and you have to do it in a, a gentle way. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, a I would get, there, the, there were a couple of me- meetings where I would get frustrated with one particular person and, you know, it was always a conference call and the guy was in New York. But if, if we were in the same room, I probably would have wanted to throw that something at him because he, would, he really just thought these films were, were junk and he just, you know, for, for him, this was just a job. And he really wasn't interested in going the extra mile to, to, to locate, you know, better elements or whatever the case may be. You right. Know? right. And, the, and in particular, I'm thinking of, um, the, uh, Ghidra. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, um, and again, my memory's a little foggy because it's been a few years, but they were going to put out the, they had agreed to put out the Japanese uncut version with subtitles, of course, and the English language version that they were going to p- release. Uh, was a butcher job. It, it was, it was something that I'm trying to remember, but it, it was what they had released to, um, what had been shown on the, um, Monsters HD channel. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, and it, it, it just looked like garbage. And, um, I mean, it wasn't in scope and, um, it had other problems. So we were trying to get them to, sp- we had located a person who had the skill and the knowledge to basically reconstruct the American edit from, you know, the, the, the we thought this was the best we could do at that time, to reconstruct the American uh, cut from, say, the Japanese footage. Okay. Oh. Which is what ended up... Well, that's what ended, what ended up happening. But this, the interesting thing is, so, we, you know, I had been I, Ed and I, and maybe Keith too, I can't remember, had been badgering them about this English version that they had and that they were determined to release and didn't think it was such a bad thing. No, you know, please don't do that. That's horrible. You've got an opportunity here to do something right. 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 Why do you want to do this? Blah, 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 blah. So, so I came to them and, it, uh, it was actually David Oh, I, I, oh, okay, yeah. uh, David ha- had, uh, you know, uh, all day entertainment, uh, his, his, uh, yeah. Home video company Been re- releasing a number Of uh, interesting things uh, Over the past few years At that time But he had an expertise In um, Final Cut Pro He had trained himself And one of the projects That he had endeavored Upon uh, t- to basically train himself how to use Final Cut Pro was to reconstruct the American edit of Gidra. Oh. So he had all the cuts logged and everything. Oh. And, and so he would just have to go in with the, you know, the the master file and do it again, but he already had a lot of the information logged, so it would have, he could have done it rel- rel- relatively quickly. So they and you know, and he basically just you know, he was going to do it for next to nothing. He just just wanted enough to to cover his expenses, I believe. And um, this was all going back and forth. They didn't want to spend even the the you know pocket change that that was. And then they said they they called me one day and said, "Oh, we already have that. Some we found like in a box somewhere." The uh, the uh, oh, we no. have a uh, reconstruction oh, 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 no. of the American cut, and they had it all along. But the thing is, like, they didn't even know a lot of the times what elements they had, and and because they're not familiar with the, all the nuances of the genre and yeah. and the idiosyncrasies of the different versions, you know. So that was kind of like our role was to try to you know make some sense of that. Yeah, and yeah. and and but they wouldn't let us see what they had if they'd like oh. you know. Let somebody go in and, and catalog all the different versions of of the films that they had. It would have been a lot easier, and we could have steered them in you know the right direction a little faster. But but they never would you know they were very secretive about that part of it. Anyway, um, how
1: d- how did you go about convincing them?
0: Oh, I don't know. Probably just hectoring them all over and over again. Yeah, and they eventually. I uh, mean, some things were great. I mean, their their art direction. That uh, they they we encouraged them to use things like the. um the Japanese posters for the box art and things yeah. like that. No, and the they, box they, art looks very yeah, similar
2: to Japanese DVD releases. Yeah,
0: and so they just, bought into that yeah. idea really fast. I think Ed must have shown them some examples of that sort of thing. But it was the whole, um you know... uh you know, if, it, if there was any kind of work that involved reconstructing um, uh, elements or putting a film back together, there was a lot of... Um,
1: they, they'd want to spend the money,
0: to Yeah, or the time. Or, or sometimes I feel, feel like it was more of like a cultural thing, like, we just don't do that here. You know, that's
2: not the kind well, of they, thing that we do. When they acquired Saperstein's uh, library, did they... Did they make the purchase? They didn't make the purchase because he had the stuff for Godzilla. They because he had a lot of Mr. Magoo things, right? Yeah. Like
0: his I think it was the, a package deal, you it was know. Just sort of. And, one of those and actually, that's an interesting that question, You know, I don't really know the logic behind it uh, because I wasn't involved in that. But um, um, at the time we came aboard, there was a guy named Steve Vincent who was um, heading up the whole Godzilla line, mm-hmm. and he was really enthusiastic about it. This is the kind of thing that happens, seems to happen to me all the time when I wrote my book. I sold it to a a big uh, publisher in New York and the editor who bought it was really enthusiastic and then he quit like three months later and put me in the hands of another editor who did not care about Godzilla and did not care about my book. And this happens in Hollywood and in record companies and all kinds of things where like, you know, like a producer puts a film in motion and then he leaves and the people who take over the project don't care about it. It's not theirs, you know, it's not their baby. And, um, and that's what happened with, with classic media to an extent. Um, Steve, uh, left shortly after he basically brought us all aboard. And the people who, uh, who took over the project for him, I certainly don't want to sound ungrateful because I think they did, uh, in certain ways, a, a really good job, but it, it just, they just weren't passionate about it in the same way. You know, to them, it was, it was
2: work. Right. And it makes sense. I yeah. mean, sometimes companies just have to look at that bottom line. Right. And so make I don't the know how I got off on this
0: tangent. It's like the whole business side of this, of this kind of thing is really um, frustrating sometimes. And, um, but you have to deal with it.
2: Well, since we're talking about classic media, like, give us a little bit of insight as to how much work it took for you guys to record the commentaries for those movies. Well, we had done one previously,
0: um, trying to think back. Um, I owe all of, all of us owe a, uh, you know, a debt of gratitude to, uh, Bruce Goldstein, who's the head of Rialto Pictures. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, he's the reason that we got involved in this kind of work in the first place. Um, he's a really great guy, and he had, um, recommended us to the British Film Institute.
2: Uh, oh right when they did their release right of and Godzilla. that's that
0: was the first commentary that I, that ed and and i ever worked on and keith was on it too and um so that went pretty well i thought um and uh it was i was really happy the, with the way it came out especially mm-hmm. since i'd never done anything quite like that before and um based on that classic media contacted us and they basically i think if i remember right wanted to use the same commentary um but mm-hmm. they couldn't get the rights to do it so they contacted us and i mean we own those words and thoughts so there was no problem with us going in and doing it again and and we changed it around a bit but um but it's more or less the same you know right, right. same same idea and um so With classic media, you know, they had told us up front that they were going to release all of these different films in a a series or in succession. And initially they just wanted to do commentaries and special features and whatnot on the first disc, the double
2: disc. Right, for just Gojo. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, um, me and my bright ideas, I suggested, why don't you do the same thing on all of them? And they, you know, then it was like a budgetary issue. And so I call it like the miracle of the lows and fishes. I took the amount of money that they were originally going to spend on the the one double disc set. Right. And stretched it across all of them, oh, which man. may or may not have been a, a good thing. I don't know. But yeah. I, it, it worked out okay, I think.
2: I really love the commentaries on those. I actually... Bob
0: yeah. did one. Bob just walked in. Oh, Bob Johnson's here. Hey, Bob.
2: Oh, we're talking about the commentaries that, that you guys uh, did for... Go.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Forever ruined your reputation.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, we we actually started doing some commentaries recently that you could just download and yeah. and listen to just for fun. Uh, and they've it. I was. Um, I haven't tried. It. Can you sync them up to the film? Is it? Yeah. What before the- before you like if you if you fire it up in your iPhone or f- your iPod or whatever device you want to use to listen to it, we we say okay. So we've paused the movie here, uh-huh. and you know well, that's a little it, dicey, isn't it? it? Play. When you hear the gargantua roar, I don't know. It's free entertainment, so I'm not really. And no (laughs) one's paying for any of
1: these. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You get what you get.
2: Yeah. I haven't had any complaints about it yet, but it's, I was surprised. I mean, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but kind of a little bit surprised, a little bit frustrated with my own uh, knowledge and how much, how much time I had to, had to spend, like, doing my own research before the film, because uh, out of the three or four of us that record each, each one, like, I, made this stupid decision to be the guy that has, like, the factoids that that talks <laughs> about yeah. the different people in the movie and so forth. But it's still a lot of fun, and I really enjoy it. So, yeah. I mean, like, you guys... So, you personally have been on the original Godzilla uh, twice. release. Twice. Twice now. And you were on Godzilla Raids again. Right. Which I suggested a lot of my listeners, list, you know, actually seek out and acquire because that... Uh, commentary is almost more entertaining than the film itself. Like hearing oh. the history of the entire some people entire hate movie. it,
0: really. Yeah, I've gotten some weird emails from people who think I did a horrible job on that, one. and then I've had other people say it was okay. But, I really um, liked it, and yeah. I liked
2: how you brought other people in to talk about it as well. Yeah, I like yeah. to do that. Yeah, it's good. Uh, but anyway, you've been in, you've been involved in a number of them, and uh, how much like how much time did you well have it's all- to dig through your stuff for if you had to average it out per movie.
0: Well, Ed and I usually do them together, and um, we don't usually like to just recycle all the things that we've already written or researched. So, right. some we'll go back to the well. If it, it really depends on how much time we have, um, but we'll go back and try to do new research and and find new information about the film or things we didn't know before. I mean, right. that's the fun thing for us is to to learn more and and uh, and find out uh, you know what we've been missing, and it gives us a good you know. Uh, Justification for spending that time and sometimes, you know, funds to do that. Yeah. So, but but it really is all a product of like the schedule, um, and your, the budget you have to work with. Um, although now with home recording, you know, because over the last few years I've noticed like the the budgets for this type of project have gone down and down and down and down. Right. And I think it's a kind of like inversely proportional to the the rise of uh, streaming media and the, mm-hmm. the downward trend in the DVD market. And, I mean, people are just... L- th- there's less and less justification to produce this kind of content. Right. And a lot of these smaller, uh, you know, home entertainment or home video companies that release really, like, uh, fringe niche titles are getting fans to produce special features content for them for yeah. free. Yeah, it's, and And it's... In a way it's I got into an argument with a guy about this because he was laughing about it. Uh a guy who sh- shall remain nameless. It wasn't it had it nothing to do with uh you know, Toksatsu stuff. But um this uh this guy has a small video company and he was kinda like laughing about the fact that people were giving him you know, producing commentaries and things that he was he's putting it, you know he's packaging it with his release and selling it. And I just you know, that's not right. But anyway, um It takes, uh, the the amount of time that you spend preparing is kind of like related to the amount of time you're given, you know, to to deliver the finished product. Right, right. Because you know that um, sometimes, it depends, like, one of the the most frustrating um, things that we've had to deal with is the requirement that everything be scripted in advance. You know, I would prefer to work off note cards and kind of, you know, rehearse it a bit so that I can kind of get a general idea of the timing I but, think that's what
2: we should do next time. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, like you kind of, like,
0: block out, you know, like, during this section of the film, I'd like to speak about this, and you can kind of plot it out on index cards, but that's not uh, the way it works with Toho, and not all studios require this, as a matter of fact, they're the only studio I've worked with that required it, although Sony uh, had an additional requirement that everything go through their lawyers, which was interesting, but... Um, hmm. Yeah, uh, but it's all it, it, whoever you're working for they they impose certain, you know, uh requirements and restrictions. But Toho wants to read the script in advance. And uh That's yeah, hard then
1: because it's like almost like when you're doing the commentary basically just reading your own like reading a script.
0: It's yeah, I think it doesn't it's sound terrible. Na- natural. It, it it may I I mean I'm not a good speaker to begin with and that makes me even worse because I just sound like I have tried to sound natural but it's I'm reading something, you know. So Essentially, what you, yeah. yeah, so what I I've tried also to do certain things, but it just doesn't work. You know, you like you glance at it but you don't really read it. But then I've gotten dinged for hey, that's not the exact wording. And really? It, yeah, Wow. Like it
2: does it? it confuses somebody so in the not review only process. Yeah, they read the script, but they then go and listen to the listen to the recording and compare it to uh, the script.
0: Y- yeah, that happened at Sony, yeah, it was interesting. Um, Where's Sony I'm sorry. Well, we're they re- t- they released the uh, the icons of uh, sci-fi Toho. Oh yes. Set.
2: Okay. So with Mothra and right, Battle and they
0: Ashton. were actually they, that was where we. Uh, I had a reference to the Three Stooges that I had to pull out of, it, one, of one of the, because it had to do with, well, at the title that I mentioned was part of a legal dispute between Sony and I guess uh, one of the uh, the, the Fine uh, Larry Fine's estate wow. or something like that. I. This is several years ago, so I don't remember the details, but I had to edit out the reference to the Three Stooges for some inane, you know, reason (laughs) that I was totally unaware of. So, you have to, it's just interesting to deal with all these little things that you just, you know, that's not really my job. I just want to talk about the film, you know.
2: Wow. And so, have you, okay, so I don't know if you can talk about it or if you want to talk about it, but there was a... There was a commentary recorded for Godzilla vs Megalon that didn't get onto the disc. No,
0: I can talk about it. It actually was, I guess you could say, it was leaked because um, somebody pushed the wrong button and manufactured I uh, I don't know what the quantity was, yeah. but the special edition on the DVD was in the marketplace, unbeknownst to you know. I, I had to, I, I was one of the people who bought a, a bunch of copies. I asked initially, I asked them to send it to me, and they wouldn't or they didn't. And then I went out and bought a few copies, and they were all the, the standard editions. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Screw this. I'm not
0: giving them any more of my money. And Yeah. Um, so But somebody at the company uh very nicely finally sent me a few copies of it, okay. so that was nice to have.
2: What happened there? Why didn't they end uh, up? Oh, uh, boy. Is you that had some, to yeah. go there, Kyle. I was going to – you know, I have to say it is a question that I have been asked – well, uh, repeatedly
1: from I'm fans. i sure.
0: Yeah, well, I've been asked it too, and um, so the answer that I can give you is only from my perspective. I don't know the ins and outs of what really happened. Um, that but, works. We can go with that. But I think I know more than, than I, for, for, I. I don't know for certain what happened. Let me put it that way. But I have strong, um, you know, beliefs or, or you know, I. Th- okay. So, you know, we we were contracted to record uh and uh, commentaries and um first it was I I you know, it's been a couple of years now, but Destroy All Monsters was the first project. I can't even remember if we signed on to do both of them at the same time. I don't think so, but maybe we did. I I really don't remember. Um but all I know is Ed d- didn't want to work on Megalon. He wasn't interested, but I had this and I wasn't really that interested in in it as much Either at the first, and then I had this conversation with Stuart Galbraith on the phone. We talk regularly; we're friends, and he was really interested in, in doing a commentary. and And I, I just sort of got sucked into his enthusiasm and his whole thesis of, uh, you know, wanting to kind of put the film in context because it occupies this such this unique place in the history. Of, you know, it, it's not; it's very bad, and everybody sort of agrees on that but it also t- was made at this time when the Japanese in- film industry was going up in flames and that is fascinating And I mean the economics issues uh, the economic issues uh, uh, that surround the making of the film I thought were, were, were really fascinating so so th- so we did it uh, um, and, um, and there were logistical things to sync up you know he and I are in two different uh, parts of the world now um we figured out ways to do it within the you know the meager amount of money that they would uh spend to get it done also um you know there were other things that this is kind of gives you an idea of, of how things go like you you kind of this one in in particular was was difficult because we didn't want it to, we wanted to find a way somehow to not be completely scripted. We knew we had the, the constraints of the script, but we did we, we wanted to to try somehow to make it at least a little bit more um Spontaneous. So, what we kind of, what we ended up kind of doing was recording it. Some parts of it were prescripted or at least, you know, done from notes. But I had enough time to basically send, make a transcript of the finished thing and then send that out. And then what was reviewed was the transcript. Oh, okay. So, okay. so that was a little different and I think it's better for that. I mean, we're both, again, working off notes to keep ourselves honest, but I think it's at least a little bit more conversational. But, um, to answer your question, what happened? So <laughs> that's the most, uh, yeah. So, so that's, that's the interesting part. So, so all this work goes on. And there were meetings, uh, phone meetings, of course, with the company where we were asked, Ed and I were asked, um, you know, when you guys worked with classic media, how were all the clearances for um photos and things like that done? Uh, you know, speaking, you know, now of the all the the um photo galleries and things like that, that are, right. you know, the yes. trailers and things like that. Uh, a lot of that stuff has always come from Ed's collection. Um I think part of that is because he's so it's not that he, other people don't have this stuff, they do. But Ed is very well organized. He keeps it all, you know, scanned, and you know, he scans that every, everything at the highest resolution, and he cleans it up, and, and um, you know, it's all cataloged and all that stuff. So he's able to deliver this type of material to these companies, excuse me, in a format that they can, you know, riddle, easily use. He makes it easier for them. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons that, that he's been so successful doing that, but... um so, they asked us how we cleared everything, and we explained to them that basically everything was documented and cataloged and paid for. Classic Media was, uh, to my knowledge, extremely, um, uh, you know, meticulous about that. And they wanted to do everything to the letter. Everything was, every fee was paid, and, and they wanted to make sure that when these things, you know, came out, that, you know, their contract with Toho was, was uh, honored to the fullest, and that there wouldn't be no problems. And uh, we thought that um, that we were being asked for this information because okay. <laughs> they wanted to do the same. Right. And I, I don't know what happened after that, but my understanding is that somewhere, somehow, a decision was made to not do that and to just put this thing out and see what
2: happens. Interesting. Yeah. So that was, for, but and, that was for destroy all monsters.
0: Well, that, that was the one that was released first, and that's so. I guess that we're going to have, look. This is just my. Yeah, I guess right. it, This if is hearsay. We had to, if we had, if this we had is hearsay, but this is my my best guess of what occurred. And um so, so, so when this thing hit the market, destroy all monsters. I guess Toho was not pleased. <laughs> Yeah, and frankly, I wasn't either because you know I don't want to be associated with you know a uh, a release that um, doesn't follow the letter of the law. I mean, my feeling about it now is you know I I it's just disappointment because we worked on those two discs, especially with Megalon. I mean, we put a lot of work in, and we don't do this for a living, right? It's an avocation, you know. You know, I. I hear that. Yeah, it's we yeah. do it because you love it and because you want to 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 spread the word and 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 enhance the, you know, the legacy of these movies and the people who made them and you know and someone made a business decision that just basically flushed all of that down the toilet, you know and and that's, because it's, it's, it's really all, unfortunate because you know I keep coming back to the whole you know the budget decisions and all that stuff but that's really when you're you, you know we're doing this because we love it but the 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 companies that that are releasing these films. They are There are people within each company you know the individuals who will who who you 'll meet who love the, the content and who do respect it, but by and large it 's a business and they 're trying to put something out and make a profit right mm-hmm. and it 's a marginal you know it 's a niche market yeah. so so they can 't really you know criterion can put out a, a, a an amazing release and they can spend the time and spend the money to restore the film. I mean, that's a cl- uh, first-class effort, but Criterion yeah. is in a completely different category. Well, they- they've,
2: they've really, they've honed their, almost like what I would say, uh, and it's very weird for me to spout, like, uh, marketing terms on the podcast, but they've honed their brand message and identity to be... yeah. The company that releases these fantastic.
0: Right. That's exactly right. And they can, they can sell it at a, a price point that's higher than, than the average, you know, release because their clients, their, their, their audience is very loyal. And, um, so, but see, that's what I kept telling, you know, friends and fans and people who would contact me about complaining about various problems with the classic media stuff. Very gently, I would try to remind, remind people without, trying to, you know, sound like I'm biting the hand that feeds me. Right, right. But, you know, this is not Criterion. You know, where I I think, by and large, they're trying to do the best they can. But This is not the Criterion company, the Criterion collection. It's basically a children's entertainment company doing something that is a departure for them. And,
2: and oh, yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could have been a lot worse. I mean, I know that sounds like a cop-out, but it, those releases could have been even
2: far worse. You know, far less than what they are. I think that yeah. probably when a company like Classic Media and not, not necessarily a company like Media Blasters, but a company like Classic Media, uh, they purchase a collection of films, they most likely expect to spend very little time on those releases and just get them to market sure. very quickly, uh, so that they can immediately start selling items and, and recouping back some of what they, they consider to be the, the money that they spent on that library.
0: Right. right? Well, that was why it was, I was disappointed that we didn't get to release, um, bringing Godzilla down to size as part of the box set. Right. Um, you know, the, the plans changed. Uh, they pushed, as I recall, pushed up the release date for the box set, uh, and decided they didn't want to spend any, a, any more money on, on it in terms of, you know, additional features. And again, I, I think that coincided with the change of hands at the company and other things that were going on. And then, uh, the thing just kind of like, the film, uh, it sort of lay in stasis for a while. I can't remember the exact number of months, but we there was a time there where we didn't know if it was going to get released at all. And so, uh, when they announced, uh, or, or uh, we I don't know if they announced, but we learned that they were releasing War- Rodan and War of the Gargantuas. we pushed them to put it on there.
2: Oh, so they were when they put re- released their box set. They were like, we're not going to include this. They didn't include it. uh, Well, I mean, before, so they didn't tell you beforehand that when they bumped up the street date, they said they didn't say. No, they told us. They told us, and Um, we
0: were very disappointed. And you know, but at least they had another two movies so that you could. But at that point, we didn't know that 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 was you know going to be the plan. We had no idea what they were going to do with the documentary because at one point, I I think, and there was a conversation, if I remember correctly, where they basically said they were you know that they had no plans for it. They were. You know, since it was no longer part of the box set, there was a brief period of time there where it's possible that it would have been, you know, lost, lost to
2: the ages. Yeah, I'm glad it was on the DVD. Even though it would have been great if it was a, a larger production, yeah, uh, at least what you could buy at home for home use. Yeah, um, I, I would love for more people to see it. In fact, I definitely want to talk to you about that at some point. Well,
0: too. it's on uh, for all you uh, savvy listeners. It's uh, you can find it on at least up
2: till recently you could find it on some of these torrent uh, websites where you can download illegal files and things right, like that. I think that. Norman was talking about like somebody put it on YouTube and he was like get out there watch it on YouTube everybody. I think it was taken off of YouTube, oh, okay. but I know that I put the trailer
0: up. We had we made a little trailer for the Egyptian um screening. And so I posted the trailer and the trailer f- still exists. But yeah, you're right. Somebody posted the entire thing at some point, but I'm fairly certain it's been taken down but if not
2: great yeah (laughs) well it's a really great documentary um and i do think more people should see it it's it's definitely one of the things that as i have started to look deeper into these films especially the older films i have definitely grown to appreciate the special effects aspect of it more and people doing things by hand and people uh spending the time and money necessary to make things look you know, realistic and, uh, you know, I, I've, I get a huge kick out of watching the, the new Gamera trilogy. Right. The, the one that came out in the 90s, uh, because the special effects work in that really seems to be very similar to the, the stuff in the Showa era, but mm-hmm. it's got the added addition of some CGI stuff that, and they really meld very well, in my opinion, at least sort of right. as good as they can for the time they came out, which is essentially what I, what I'm looking for in a movie, I don't, I don't watch the original Godzilla film and say, oh, that compositing looks bad, you know, because <laughs> that came out in 1954. I don't expect it to have, you know, the best green screen technology and, and stuff in, in, in an older film like that. But I really appreciated that aspect of it. But you guys have been, I don't want to say slowed down, but you and Ed are still working together.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, projects. there's only, um, so many of these projects that I'm I'm close to retirement from this type of thing. And I think I mean I think I've said all I need to say, and it's time to move on and let other people. Uh, there's a book that Ed and I have been writing, and it's um, nearing completion now, and um, that'll probably be my last. Um, there, I mean I'll continue to write about film. I have another book that I've been working on for a number of years that's completely unrelated to this, and I want to get back to that and finish it. But Ed and I um, uh, may this could be our I mean, you never say never, but uh, I mean, it's one of our last big projects together on this, uh, this type of, uh, film. Um, it's, uh, a biographical film study, uh, overview of Ishiro Honda. And, um, it's a book we've been working on for a few years now, and it's time we finish it. Uh, it is. Being published through Wesleyan University Press, okay, mm. which is a, a very prestigious. Um, it was a coup. I'm very lucky to to be uh, to be published there. Um, they've published works by some of the, the best and most respected film historians in, in the United States. And I think it's a departure for both of us. I mean, it's it's different than anything you know we've written before. And um, I hope. My, I mean, the whole purpose of it is to kind of tell a more complete story of Honda's life and his film career. Yeah, and he
2: did a lot more than just the kaiju films,
0: right? And and I and that was kind of like what what that the idea. It was the thing that really got us excited about writing it. Uh, it was the idea of you know having an opportunity to see his non-science fiction films as well and get a more complete picture of him as a filmmaker and, and see his progression as a, as a craftsman and a, as an artist. Um, and so at this point, we've seen all of his films except for two, wow. one of them being a, a documentary called The Story of a Co-op and the other being um, a short feature that he did, feature ed, I guess you could call it, called Night School that he did in, mm. the, in the mid-late 50s. Which is actually not a Toho film; it was a, an independent uh, production.
2: I often talk to people about uh, the amount of work that that Japanese actors take on. Like they'll have many, many, many titles in their in their filmography. How many titles did Honda work on? Like how many did he direct?
0: Uh, over forty films. Nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we had the, the one of the reasons the film the, the book has taken so long to do to write and research is because we had to find a lot of these films. And they're not commercially available. Uh, the only non-science fiction films that Honda directed that are available on DVD in Japan are um, Eagle of the Pacific and Farewell Rabal. Hmm. I think that's it. Are any available like domestically here in America? No. And that's something that I'm going to to investigate. I mean, we've actually put... I can't really talk about it now, and there's really nothing to talk about because nothing has happened. But in conjunction with the publication of the book, my goal is to find a way to screen or release one or more of those films in this country. Uh, It'll be difficult, but I have some ideas uh, about how this could be pursued. Um, But uh, at this point, I really can't. There's no, nothing's happened yet. Right. I mean, it's just a. At this point, it's just an idea.
1: Are some of the films like lost? I mean, no, not really. So most of them are at least they're out there someplace.
0: Uh, well, the only one that appears to be lost is Story of a Co-op. It's a. It was a documentary that he made in the late '40s. It was actually the first uh, thing that he directed, and um, nobody's seen that. I mean, I, I, the, the, one of his other uh, his other documentary film uh, was called Iseshima. Which was a kind of a travelogue of a uh, the area of Japan actually where they shot a lot of the uh, Odo Island stuff for Godzilla, just kind of a coastal area there, beautiful part of Japan. Um, that film has shown on cable television a number of times in the last decade or so, and that's okay. that's essentially how we were able to get a copy of it. Some of them mm, taped it. And a lot a lot of the films that we um, acquired aren't like I said. There's only those two that are commercially available. So yeah. we had friends that. We're able to tape things off cable television, or, or uh, somehow uh, or other, track down um, a copy of a rare film. And um, I mean, the film that I would really love to see released, or at least screened here, is uh, the Blue Pearl. It's his first uh, dramatic feature. Is that about pearl divers? Well, it is. Uh, it, I mean, that's the setting. I seem to remember reading about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, he had made Ise uh, a few years uh, year so earlier which was the documentary tra- travelogue type of film that focuses on this beautiful area of Japan, the the sort of, uh, one of the main attractions uh, of which is the local culture of pearl diving and pearl harvesting. Um, and then a year or so later, he directed this dramatic film, and it was set in the same location. It's a lovely little film. I mean, I, I really like it, and I think it's set, If you if anyone were able to see it, it's, it sets up a lot of the themes that you see in his later films. Um, I mean, there was this constant theme in, especially in his early films. And it goes back to his life, which is this, con- and it's, it was universal anyway. It's this theme that you constantly see in Japanese films, uh, made after the war. Um, this conflict between, um, tradition and, Modernization. Um, uh, it, it basically goes back to you know Commodore Perry, and then the Meiji era, and then the acceleration, especially after the war during the occupation of Western influence on Japanese culture, and um, in the Blue Pearl, you have the story is about uh, Ryo Ikebe is the star of the show, of the of the film. You know, Ryo Ikebe from Battle in Outer Space, and, and you know he was a huge star in, in the 40s and 50s and he plays uh, a school teacher who arrives from Tokyo he's i think he's just gotten out of college he's a young guy he arrives in this little backwater coastal town he's just taken a job as the school teacher at the l- local schoolhouse and he also moonlights in the lighthouse on the coast and I think he has basically has two jobs to, to make ends meet uh there's an almost an immediate attraction between him and this young pearl diver but she's already Engaged through an arranged marriage with a local boy, and that's like this constant theme that pops up and again again and again in so many of his films, and including in Godzilla Now the first time I saw Godzilla, you know especially when I saw the um, the Japanese version I must have seen that around nineteen i don 't know ninety three or so mm-hmm. when the fir- first time I was able to get a it was the Horatio Higuchi um, uh, s- subtitled uh, version of the uh, of, of the film. Uh, but I always like, you know, the, the 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 arranged marriage between Emiko and Sarazawa and, the you know, her, you know, cavorting around with uh, Ogata right in front of her father who, you know, I always th- I thought that that must, you know, have been such a, you know, an unusual thing, you know, that I, I think I'm, in my mind, I made much more out of that than it than uh, than than was really there. The fact is that's that's such a common theme, not just in you know in in Honda's films, but in so many Japanese films. But at that point, I hadn't been exposed to very many. But you know, if you watched Ozu and all these other films from the fifties, that's a constant thing cropping up where you know the young people are born more, more you know emboldened to find their own way and to find right, their right. own you know to to basically to marry the person they love and. Oftentimes, you know, they'll be shot down and they'll, you know, have to abide by the, the tradition and what, the wishes of the family and marry the, the guy that they've been, you know, uh, paired up with. But um, in Honda's films, that's a, a, a constant thing uh, where the, you find these, particularly these women will fall in love with a man, but there's so much pressure on them to marry, you know, the, 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 the boy that they've been uh, 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 arranged with. And it goes back to Honda's life, essentially. Uh, Honda and his wife, Kimi Honda. I guess what I'm trying to say in this terribly long-winded way is that there's so many things, by, by being able to watch these other films, which have much more of a focus there's no monsters so they're about people and and through those people we learn what mattered most to Honda there are so many uh, story elements in his films that are you can you can say are autobiographical that go back to things in his life his wife kimi was from a wealthy family and honda uh, went, you know she she went to the city to she was a very independent uh, girl when she was growing up and um so she went to the city, and she found a job. She was inspired by movies. She wanted to work in, in the film business. And um, she ended up working at Toho, and um, that's how she met Honda. Uh, at that point, she was working as a scripter. Um, and they had this sort of, like, group of friends that they socialized with. Kurosawa was part of that group. Senkichi Taniguchi was part of that group. And Kimi was part of that group and they, after work, they would get together and drink and socialize. Kimi and Ishiro Honda were basically like platonic friends for a long time before he con- you know, professed his, his love for her and right. proposed. But her parents opposed the marriage because he was this low, you know, wage studio employee at right. a time when the movies were not, you know, a respectable profession. So her family was against the marriage and he, she basically, had to give up her, her inheritance, her dowry, or whatever you want to call it, in order to marry him. Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: So is, uh, so you said his, his film works have been very autobiographical. Uh, I sort don't know of if like I would say over. very autobiographical,
0: but I would say there are things in them mm-hmm. that you can, you can see parallels to his own life again and again and again. Little details. I mean, just like the, uh, the village festival that, you know, the thing in, 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 in Godzilla where the Odo Islanders are, are dancing and all that. That's actually a common thing that you see in a lot of his films because a lot of his films feature this sort of conflict between the, the city and the country or the, the, the modern and the primitive or whatever you want to call it. And there's often a you know, uh, you know, a uh, Story like the one I was just describing, where someone from the city goes to a, a more rural part of the country, and they're exposed to these, you know, folk festivals and dances, and they don't—they're kind of awkward about it. Like this in *The Blue Pearl*, you know, the big festival is, you know, like it's a it's a local culture, local uh, ritual, and Rio the city boy, is, you know, part, you know, has to participate in this in this event, and he doesn't really—he's awkward about it. He doesn't know what he's doing, you know, and. um Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really charming. Um, that film, I, I, like I said, I, just to get back, I, I'm hoping that there's some way to to. Not, I I don't think a home video release is you know feasible, but
2: some kind of theatrical yeah, screening of a some screening
0: sort. of some sort would be really really wonderful. Um, you know, it would involve having to subtitle it and all that stuff. But um, I just think it's a it's a wonderful little film, and it's beautiful. It's it, it actually. Um, for, uh, you, you may have read this. I'm sure it's been reported elsewhere. Um, but for Ise the documentary that features, uh, some footage of the Pearl Diver, mm-hmm. Divers, uh, going underwater, uh, a special waterproof, uh, camera housing was developed for that. And it was used again in the Blue Pearl and, in, and then again in Godzilla. And at that point, uh, especially after the Blue Pearl, there's a, there's a lot of underwater footage in that film. There's a whole thing at the end of the film where two there's the two pearl divers that uh, are rivals for the affections of Ikebe yeah, yeah he's basically in love with uh with one girl, but there's another girl who has come just come back from living in Tokyo for a year or two years, and now she's wearing the high heels and the makeup and all that and all again the western influence. You know, the dark cloud of, you know, of American, uh, modernism. Know. She's smoking different cigarettes. Right. She's speaking differently now, using slang and whatnot. And everybody thinks she's a tramp, but, and she's, she's got an attitude and she sees how, um, you know, she's got an eye, her eye on Ikebe, but he's in love with this other girl. And so she kind of tries to split them up hmm. by, you know, uh, the home wrecker kind of thing, even though there's no home to wreck. And so, the end of the movie, um, the blue pearl of the title is this, uh, kind of sacred pearl that's, uh, uh, legend has it lives, um, uh, at the bottom of the, of the bay there. Right. And the two girls, uh, and whoever possesses it will, you know, find happiness and whatnot. There's a legend attached to it. But anyway, the two girls dive to try to, to, you know, whoever gets it basically okay. gets the guy. And the there's a tragic conclusion to them. spoils. Yeah, And that, but there's all this wonderful underwater photography there. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a nice film. And, and then there's other... I'm oversimplifying, but there are basically three uh, phases to his career. Well, there's four if you count the work that he did before he became a director. Uh, maybe five. But he became a director in, uh, in the early 50s. And up until Godzilla, all of his films are fairly serious and involve... Except for um, the two war films, uh, the, the, there's a, the, this conflict, you know, this man versus nature kind of, uh, you know, the, the old cliche. But the, that's kind of like the the overarching theme of a lot of of those early films. The Blue Pearl, Skin of the South, is about these scientists from Tokyo who come, geologists who basically go to this this rural mountain community where there's there's geologic shifting going on and big uh landslides are occurring and there's this worry that um this village this mountain village is basically going to slide down the mountain if there's another typhoon in that area and these geologists come in and say look you people you've got to move out of here you're you're going to die you're going to wash down the mountain the next heavy rainfall and there's a timber company and all these people who work there worked for the timber company and he was a big land baron it's played by yoshio kosugi the the great uh He's a great villain in Half Human. He plays the Native Chief in uh, King Kong versus Godzilla. But he's in millions okay, of films. Okay. He's a great actor, and he also was like an acting teacher and whatnot. But anyway, he plays this, you know, horrible villain, who, the, the the owner of the uh, the timber company, who basically said, "Ah, you you scientists are from Tokyo. You what do you know about here? You know this this area here? You know." It's basically like, I, I, in the book, I draw an analogy to climate change and the debate over that. Mm-hmm. He basically, he basically says scientists are full of it, you know, and the people, the superstitious people, you know, they, they, they buy into this that sort of thing. And of course, at the end of the movie, there's a big typhoon and the whole town washes down, <laughs> down the mountain. And it's the first real collaboration between Honda and Eiji Tsuburaya, oh, cool. who did the it's all done in miniature and there's all these water effects and it's very if you're familiar with his work it looks very familiar uh who worked on that film uh uncredited because at that point he was still not uh able to work out in the open in the industry
2: oh because of the uh, the ban yeah right wow
0: so so that's interesting and then um again uh, this overarching theme in the first uh, phase of his career um, of this the conflict between modern and primitive uh, nature and civilization then after Godzilla he moves into this uh sequence of films that last pretty much to the end of the 50s that are about uh life in Tokyo and the struggle of young people to make it in this changing society that has been influenced by not only western thought and ideas but there's still, even though the, the economy is growing, you know, Toho, uh, Tokyo and Japan went through this rapid, you know, a- economic growth in the second half of the 50s, but there's still people living on the edge, you know, people who aren't making it, who aren't able to, 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 to uh, share in that prosperity there's the first film that he made after Godzilla has nothing to do with science it's interesting cuz they they he wasn't he didn't immediately become a science fiction film director right. you know yeah. he was kind of like a jack of all trades in a way i mean he he showed himself to be very vo- versatile um but um, his first film after Godzilla is called Love Makeup it's another film that i wish people could see it's with uh Yoi and Hiroshi Koizumi kind of plays the bad guy although oh. he he redeems himself at the end yeah that's another joy of watching all these films you see he had this company of actors who he came back to again and again and again and you see sides of them in these films that you don't see uh in the in the science fiction films because in those films mostly that the characters are are very limited you know they mm-hmm. they don't you know they don't have internal lives by and large they have ex- external lives they were they react they don't act so much
1: so um, you guys are working on this book? Is there like a timetable? on? Well,
0: I'm hoping it'll be out next year. I, I, that's the idea. Um, I don't know the exact month. Um, it was supposed to be out already, but writing this thing has taken a lot longer than we thought, and primarily because, you know, th- I think our, our real um, uh, attraction to doing this was to be able to, like I said, show a more complete picture of, of the man and, and learn uh, some more uh, things about him that haven't been uh, discussed yet. But... That meant tracking down all these films, which right, took right. a lot of time, and then because we didn't find them all at once, and they they trickle in over months and months and years, and then translating those those films. Right. Uh, we're actually working. we I should say, I mean, we're working with the family of of Ishiro Honda. Well, the only reason we ended up writing this book at all, it wasn't our idea. Uh, um, really? No, I, mean, I didn't really. You know, it didn't, it didn't really occur to me. But when we were making the documentary in 2007, I guess it was, we were shooting at Tsuburaya Dream Factory, Akira okay. uh, uh, Tsuburaya's company, and this guy walks in and sits down and, at a computer and starts working, and I thought, wow, that guy looks familiar, but who is he? And we're interviewing uh, Akira Tsuburaya, and he he looks and, he, and he says, you should interview that guy, too. That's a Shiro Honda's son. <laughs> he looks just like him. It's Ruji Honda, and he's tall like his dad. He looks a lot, he's soft-smoking like his dad. So we we talked to him as we were wrapping up, Ed and I did, and we kind of just hit it off with him. He seemed to think that our perspective on his dad's work was was right. And that's about as far as it went then. And then we, we I think we stayed in touch by email because he, he did ask us if there were any projects that could be done in the United States uh, relative to his dad's work. And we thought, well, okay, we'll think about that, you know. And we were discussing my email, and, and then the idea of a book came up. It was basically through him, and he offered to serve as like a conduit to sources, and,
2: and uh, uh, so he really helped out with a lot of. He the did, and and then,
0: and then and then uh, information beyond that. I mean, meeting his daughter uh, Yuko Honda, who lives in the United States. She lives in New York State, hmm. and she is she grew up. Ryuji lived in the United States for several years. He's a television producer and he was shooting stuff uh, producing stuff for NHK i believe in the 80s and 90s and he, out of new york programming on american life and things like that and so yuko his daughter uh spent a lot of her upbringing um in american schools and, you know she's japanese american even though she's not i guess technically and so she came aboard and and helped us with translating things and locating things and just kind of acting as a go between and she she's almost like a not a co author, but you know she certainly gives us her input on everything and mm-hmm. I mean we couldn't have done it without her a I mean, strong contributor at least oh right? well, more than that i and so so she would kind of a lot of, we would bounce ideas off her and you know and she would tell us when we were off base and kind of you know it's nice to have someone like that in your corner, and she would like i said, do research, track down things she's a sounding board of, she's a partner a full partner on it. So we would watch, basically, w- with these dramatic films, the three of us would watch them, and, and, and then we would have a discussion. People uh, have asked me, how do, how do you guys write together? Well, two people can't write one word, you know. Right. <laughs> so basically what we do is have a discussion, and then out of that discussion, you know, I will basically write the text, uh, most of the time, not all the time, but uh, um, based on, on, on the ideas that we want to get across. So that's how that mostly works, but um, so yeah, the, the, we researched all of those films. We went to Japan numerous times to do a certain number of interviews with people who worked with Honda, mm-hmm. and did a lot of you know just research of the times that he lived in to to put his whole life and career in context. So it's been great. It's been yeah. a cool. Really good experience.
2: And so uh, we talked briefly on the phone the other day about about the book, and you were you were talking about the you know, the potential release and the timetable there. Or did you want to actually have it released in 2014 around the same time that the Legendary Pictures movie well, is supposed I to Well,
0: I mean, be I don't know. That's not my decision. Right. I mean, the right. publisher will have to, you know, when the thing gets done, um, uh, because there's also, like, w- layout issues, you know, that, that has to be done, um, It's still not totally um, set in stone, but we do believe that we have secured um, a pretty good number of interesting images, photographs that you haven't seen before. So that's that's something I'm hoping to that sticks. But I never, you know, take anything for granted with you know this kind of thing. Um, When I wrote the book about Godzilla, I initially sold it to uh, Bantam Doubleday Dell, which was then was later acquired by Random House. The original title was Godzilla, the Unauthorized Biography, which I thought was really cute at the time, I guess. <laughs> there were a lot of uh, unauthorized trade paperback-type books at that time about all kinds of entertainment properties. They were exce- uh, more or less put out of business by a number of lawsuits. Um, I know there was a lawsuit over a Jerry Seinfeld uh, Seinfeld book, and then there was another one that got a lot of press about an X-Files book. And so publishers, you know, eventually got shy about doing that kind of thing. Right. I was totally naive. I just thought I wanted to write a book about these films that I enjoyed, and yeah. I thought it would be fun. Uh, it was To me, it was like a justification. I could now, you know, now it would be okay to spend all that money on, you know, books and languages that I couldn't read yet and things like that. So it's, for me, it was like a, a fun thing to do, but then you, had, you get involved in the business end of it, and there's all kinds of cr- things that you didn't know you had to deal with. The big thing was you know, when I sold it to this publisher... Their main reason for being interested in it had nothing to do with, wow, that's a great book or something like that. Um, I think it was because the TriStar film was coming up on the horizon and they thought, okay, we'll put this in stores and then the movie will come out and everybody will buy this book and we'll make some money. When I heard that, I thought, okay, you know best. You know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, But what happened was, in the ramp up to that 98 film, Toho and its lawyers became really... And, and and justifiably so, protective of the Godzilla trademark. And so anything that they perceived as, you know, um, infringing upon their rights, you know, anything that they, like a book. I mean, were, I, mine, my book wasn't the only one that was challenged, I guess you could say. And I didn't even get sued. Other people got sued. Um, but they policed the market really, really strongly. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to get involved in anything like that again. I mean, people right. have asked me, why don't you update your book? Well... I don't want to go through that again. I, yeah, you know, just because the book came out once doesn't mean that that I wouldn't have to go through the same process all over again. I mean, that's why I have this dumb title on the book. <laughs> uh, seriously, I mean, <laughs> they, they I, and they have this dumb title and the and the cover by uh is it's a nice cover, but it it doesn't really indicate what's in the book. Right, right. You know, yeah. so and, and I had to you know switch publisher. Nobody would publish it. You know, after the the Robert Marrero lawsuit. You know? Are you familiar with no, that? I am
2: not familiar with that. I don't, was yeah. He, he there wrote was a, a Godzilla book or Robert, something else? Do
0: you know who Robert Marrero is? Uh, I mean, I don't know him personally, but he's a, a writer who was self-publishing um, books on horror films. They were loaded with, with film stills and, you know, uh, lots of images and a little bit of text. He was publishing these books out of Florida somewhere, um, mm. and, and it was his own company as far as I know. I don't know. He might still be doing it. I have no idea. I want to say around... 95 or 96 he put out a Godzilla book a, a friend of mine was a, a reporter for the LA Times who worked in the um, the, the, the 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 he was anyway Toho sued this author i believe in federal court it's been a few years now and i had my friend uh, christian the reporter fellow journalist uh, pull the complaint from the he made me a copy oh, right, of the complaint yeah. from the court uh, the, the clerk's office Toho sued Robert Marrero for $50 million. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't think they ever thought they were going to get $10 out of him, but the the point is they were sending a message. Right. You can't do that. Yeah. And and we're going to come after you with everything we've got. And they had a very um, high-priced Century City uh, law firm. This lawsuit was reported in the media on the local news and probably on the national news at the time. Wow. And, I mean, I think... I don't know if it went in I think Robert Morero, uh if I recall, he agreed to pull the book off the shelves. Right. And that right. was a, that was as far as it went or something. It's
2: but a little bit of a step further than just a standard C and D letter. Right. And they also sued um the publisher
0: of Frank Levecha's book. Frank Levecha was a writer for Entertainment Weekly who wrote a Godzilla book. Hmm. And his book was coming uh was being published by uh Morrow, which was another big publisher, and I believe that Morrow had pu- printed like something like twenty thousand copies, and they were in boxes waiting to be shipped when the the federal injunction was Ooh. delivered to them, and they had to cease and desist and stop. Uh, they were never able to market the book. I don't know that for a fact, but I think that's what Frank once told me. I talked to him about this. So when my I, I, my book was canceled, they basically I got a letter saying. You know, our attorneys have determined that this is, you know, we can't do this. So, I took the thing. At that point, I had a manuscript, and I took it to every other publisher I could. Of course, it's hard to get your foot in the door, but I had an agent, too, at the time, and she couldn't get anybody to look at it because this stuff had been in the news, and no one wanted to touch that. That was, you know, um, dangerous. So, I ended up finding little ECW in um, Canada, and they went to the mat for me, and they put it out, but, you know, it is what it is because they had to deal with the lawyers. Right. and uh, <laughs> so that's why the title was changed And
2: I'm happy that I
0: persevered And that it was able to come out Yeah, um, It's
2: a great, it really is a great book I mean, I know you well, were Well, thank you I mean, I, if I were doing it issues. now
0: I mean, it's, it's many years have passed And if I were writing it again I would not do it the same way um, There's a lot of detritus in there That I would, you know, cut out I mean, you don't It's funny because I think there's even a list of websites in there I'd like to go back and oh, see if yeah. any of those still exist. That'd be <laughs> funny. Yeah.
2: We're staying at his friend's house just a little quick aside. And I saw that he, uh, Don has the video hound guide oh, uh, to Asian cinema. And... Uh, proud to say that my shrine of Gamera is listed in the back of that book <laughs> wow yeah uh, I mean I probably have I'm
0: just guessing because I, I haven't looked at it in a while but I'm sure it's like Barry's Temple of Godzilla yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure a lot of them are just like www.slash then some long you know geocities.com yeah, slash 36728 <laughs> slash
2: 5293 slash yeah. hilarious yeah <laughs> Um.
0: so all of that is hilarious and then I think there's a, there's a section on fanzines And anybody looking at that, you know what I'd like to know, you know, people always you know, the standard question, you you didn't ask it, but but the usual standard question is, how did you become a fan of this stuff? And you know what (laughs) I would like to know is, how do kids now become fans of this stuff? Because I'm meeting kids that are fans, but I really wonder how they find this material or how it finds them, because when we were growing up, there wasn't that much to choose from compared to what there is now i mean there's you know you can watch there's endless entertainment
2: you can watch anything
0: at at any time from any device in any location uh, pretty much i'm exaggerating a little bit but not by much and you've got video games and all kinds of other i mean when when we were when i was growing up i don't know how old you are but when i was growing up you had the tv guide and you would go through it and there would be like a few things that week that you would want to watch, and you would really wait for them to come on. And it you would just, circle
1: creature features, yeah. And then that would, you know, that's how you would ex- expose to all this kind of stuff. And
0: the thing is, like, if you if you kind of look at look at it agnostically, I mean, I fell in love with these films, and they, there's something about them that spoke to me. You know, something about the 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 world that they created. I think the fact that they take place in Japan. Mm-hmm. The, the, the the things you know the, the the architecture and the people and the, the, the clothing and everything looks different about it the, the way people behave is a little even though it's coming through a translation or a, a dub yes there's just something about it I think that the fact that it w- it takes place in Japan made the f- the idea of giant monsters more believable to me because it was a completely different world oh, interesting know, it's,
2: it's further away than your own yeah uh, it's removed from own, my own culture and exactly, my own life it doesn't look like where yeah. I live so I can
0: sort of you know, buy it in a, a different way, whereas, I mean, I liked, you know, American science fiction films, but these films really grabbed my imagination in, in a way that those did not. Now, um but see, so maybe that's where kids are, are who do find this stuff now, and, and like it, maybe that's still a part of it, but see, also... Again, agnostically, there wasn't that much to choose from. Right. So, I mean, at at three thirty after school, if Godzilla versus the Sea Monster was on, I would have watched it probably, even if I didn't like it that much. Because right. yeah. I mean, that they just—I have a friend who's who's theorized, and I think rightly so—that the reason the Brady Bunch became such a phenomenon is because it was basically the only thing that was on. You know <laughs> that 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 kids, yeah. you know, of a certain, you know, uh, pedigree could watch because our, you know, a family would only let us watch certain kinds of entertainment. You know. Um I, I mean is the Brady Bunch really kind of that great or is it just that it was so ubiquitous and then it became part of our culture? Yeah.
1: I don't know. All, I, I, all those 60s sitcoms, Gilligan's Island and all that kind of stuff, I think is, yeah. is everybody has I mean, you access know, to watching that.
0: Yeah. And th- I mean yeah. those when things have persevered channels. and new generations find them to a certain degree. So I I think they're they're I'm not disparaging them. I'm just asking the question. Is it the content or is it the access to the content or maybe just a combination of both? Yeah. So it's
2: an interesting question. I mean, I went to G Fest last year and th- I think I talked about this on the podcast. There were these two kids who couldn't have been more than 14 years old. There was a, there was like a montage almost like Godzilla Fantasia playing on the screen in front of in front of the crowd as we were waiting for the next presentation to start mm-hmm. and these kids were so excited they were like oh there's geigen i love that I,
0: You know, just yeah i th- i think that's great and i'm really encouraged by that and um because i don't want this stuff to go away completely i i know that you know as each new generation comes along they're gonna have their own fads and fashions and you know nerdisms and and all that and and this stuff, uh, this genre, will com- become more and more of a niche as or niche as time goes on. <laughs> but I hope, and, I, and I'm I'm confident that you know enough people will continue to rediscover it that it'll it'll survive. And again, well, I mean, the proof is in the two hundred and fifty million dollar blockbuster. I mean, Legendary Pictures is making another Godzilla film, and if that thing succeeds, if it's if it's you know, even a moderate success, it'll keep the the legend alive and the legacy alive. And um, it's funny, I was working as a film journalist actively when the last mm-hmm. American film right. came out, and I covered it, you know, to a certain extent. Um, but this time, I'm not covering it, and I'm not aware of what they're doing, and I have no clue as to how good or bad it's going to be. Right. And I actually prefer that. I mean, because I, I'm going to be able to watch it with completely um, a completely blank slate. I'm hopeful. I mean. I have no idea. It, it, it could be great. It might stink. Who knows? It, but I, I'm hopeful. And I mean, if the cast is any indication, it has a really interesting cast. Have you seen who they uh, yeah. put in this film? That makes me think uh, that, you know, the script must be halfway decent because these people wouldn't want... Well, I shouldn't say that because actors are actors and they got to eat too. But I wonder if, you know, some of these people like Brian Cranston would want to be in the film if the script stunk. Right, right. You know? So... I know. so i'm hopeful that it's it's at least i'm like you i love the special effects in these films but i am a i'm trained as a writer and a journalist i need a story and i need people in the film that i care about or i get bored and i I wasn't that way when i was younger i was when i was 10 years old i was sitting there waiting for godzilla to show up right but that doesn't work for me anymore you know i can't do that that's why you mentioned like something like the um the Gamera Trilogy from the 90s, mm-hmm. I mean, especially the third film. I like all three of them, you know, very much. But I think that third film has, it's not perfect, but I think it has a really interesting story. And I love when, um, it hasn't been done terribly often, successfully, but when you can find a way to find uh, a relationship between the monster and a person. Right. That means something to the story. Not just Miki Sagusa You know, following Godzilla or Junior around and it doesn't really add up to anything at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, I like Miki Sagusa. I just don't think they've ever used that character in an interesting way at all. But, um, but the psychic girl in the first camera film and the, the girl in the last, the, the one who's paired up Mm -hmm. with, with Iris, uh, Iris, whatever. Ayana. Yeah. I, I just, I think both of those characters work in that Kind of context that, in a way that Toho never found a way to do. I think both of those scripts are really good. But, um, I, I don't know. I think that third Gamera film is great. I mean, I would, t- if I, if it were up to me, I would take the, the nerd computer guy out of the script. I don't think he does anything <laughs> yeah. for the story. I mean, you can remove, uh,
2: but I mean, it's, He brings the Dreamcast game yeah, into it. Yeah,
0: uh, but, but that's just me. But, um, I thought, I found it really emotional where he, you know, mm-hmm. when Gamera reaches into, you know, the, saves the girl at the
2: end and and i thought that was a brilliant
0: ending you know wow. yeah I, uh, I
2: love the the films but uh uh steve we have taken up so much of your time today thank you very right? much for hanging nice. out yeah, with us. yeah thanks for joining uh, thanks us the convention
0: maybe you can interview ron jeremy maybe uh <laughs> that was, people
2: can find you on you i j- have a, a crappy
0: website that i should update <laughs> i i haven't had time but i'm going to do something with it it's kind of like it's not really a, a website. It's a repository for articles I've written mm-hmm. and things like that. But I should do more with it, and I eventually I will. Um,
2: well, when you're finished with the book, yeah, definitely let I'll, me know, and we'll I will disseminate the information. I
0: mean, information. it's just steve but the, right now there's not much there to look at, it's it's laying in in wait. And then uh, I just joined Twitter, so and I I noticed I'll, I'll be tweeting <laughs> and. um and I'm on Facebook, but I don't really use it that much, but I should again. You know, I found the problem with Face, I don't know if you have this problem. I like Facebook, it's great, but every time I get on it, I it's like where did that hour or two go? Yeah. So I, I have to kind totally of ration right, my time for for those things right now. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Well, well uh, where are you guys from?
2: Oh, uh, Portland. You're
0: from Portland. You know Dave Walker, right?
2: Yeah, yeah he, I, I think did. he's been
0: on your show, right?
2: Uh, yeah, he was on the an episode with uh, some people from a uh, Grindhouse TV
0: show.
2: Oh, missing real. Well, if you happen to
0: bump into him, let me know. And by the way, how is is Portlandia at all? I mean, I love the show, but is it at all uh, as that think, place as crunchy granola as they make it out to be?
2: I think so. I think it's, I think it's probably about seventy percent, like true. dead on. Yeah, yeah.
1: It, it's like that. I, it's amplified a little bit, but yeah, you
2: have to but, kind of uh, exaggerate yeah, for a fact.
1: It's, like, it's pretty true. Yeah, yeah.
0: the one where the, the the episode where they're they're waiting in line for brunch and then the, oh, the lady yes. gets kidnapped, and I mean, there's so many good episodes of that show, <laughs> or the one where they're, they're they're trying to bring a major league baseball team. And uh, they have the tryouts, and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love the the mayor, Kyle, you know, Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's a fantastic cool just, little show. Nice. All right, guys, thanks cool. so much for inviting me. Oh, thanks, uh, thank, uh, you thank you thank very you. much I for mean, being on I mean, I hope it was show. interesting. I think I dwelled too much on the business side of it, but I I, I got caught. Uh, I got caught in a loop there where I just kept kind of talking about <laughs> that stuff. I think it's like,
1: I think people like, I mean, I love listening to that aspect. Yeah. A lot of people don't talk about that aspect.
0: Yeah, so. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. not really my favorite thing about, I mean, I'd rather just talk about the movies and and, yeah. and all that, but I mean, you know, I've kind of like got sucked into that vortex a little bit in the last few years and that's kind of why I want to just kind of, I've worked, I've been fortunate enough to work on a lot of the DVDs and things like that, but I think, as far as the Toho type stuff is concerned, I'm ready to step away and let other people deal with that and i know that all these films will eventually be you know re-released on blu-ray and all that kind of thing so there'll be opportunities anyway
2: all right thank you steve yeah thanks a lot man sure united nations reporter eric carter with the news the world is stunned to discover that prehistoric creatures exist in the 20th century the armies have been alerted as we wait for more news from japan and boy, do we have some news. Uh, actually, not just from Japan, but from America as well. Uh, the biggest and uh, beastliest news, I guess you could say, is that I actually had an incredible scoop thanks to a listener in Brazil. Yeah, we got listeners in Brazil. That is awesome. Thank you uh, to Fernando. Fernando sent a photo that he got it from a friend of his. They went to a uh, licensing expo, and at this expo, they had a poster of the legendary pictures Godzilla, and so uh, Fernando's friends snapped a photo, sent it to Fernando. Fernando was like, oh, Kyle's got to see this, sent it to me. I was like, ah, the world has to see this. I posted it on the internet, and it went quite viral. Uh, It was really kind of cool. I was... Very happy to see it shared so much, but less than two hours after I had posted, I wanted—I want to say, like within an hour and a half after I posted it on the KaijuCast page, I received an email from Legendary Pictures' uh, legal department, <laughs> strongly requesting and urging me to take that photo down. Uh, now I'm a little disappointed that they did that. One, because this was just, you know, somebody sent me something cool. I guess they might have had a no photos policy, but who knows? It's Brazil, right? So... What I would have to say is uh, it looked very cool. You can still find the image online because once you put something on the Internet, it gets redistributed. That's sort of the social beauty of all these networks that were on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I love the way Godzilla looks. And I I saw Godzilla, and this is actually what I wrote back to Legendary Pictures. I saw what they showed At San Diego Comic-Con, I saw what they showed at the Godzilla encounter, and both of them, like, I'm just super thrilled with how Godzilla looks. Sure, there's a couple little issues, foibles, if you will, but I'm not going to get involved in those because I don't really care that much. I'm very, very happy to see that they put a lot of effort into it and made Godzilla look really cool. Uh, I know a lot of people are like, oh, he looks so happy. I even said something like that because the photo made him look like he's smiling a little bit. But I really do think Godzilla is going to look pretty badass in this movie. And I really hope that the fans give it a chance. It kind of bums me out every time I see somebody going like, oh, not for me. So uh, you're obviously free to have that opinion if you want to. But uh, that's not how I feel about it. I wrote them back, said, yes, I'm going to take it down. And uh, but, you know, hopefully within with, you know, me complying with your your wishes, maybe you'll share this message message and it was basically a message that said you know look you're losing out on social media and what it can do for, for the grassroots effort that you would get from the fans if you please the fans and the fans right now want to see the teaser trailer, they want to see the creature, they want to see the monster. So do that, and and we might be happy. I've gotten some people responded, not from Legendary, and said, um, you know, oh, it's too soon. And I disagree. I really do. I disagree that it's too soon. I think this is the time. You know, the Godzilla fan base, is not huge. I mean, there's a lot of us, but it's not huge. We're not talking about, like, Star Wars. We're not talking about Harry Potter. We're not talking about, talking about something that has, like, this mass media appeal. Even though Godzilla is actually a household name, and a lot of people still know who he is, Granted, we need to turn a lot of people on to the awesomeness of Godzilla, and I really do hope that this movie does that, but this is the time to start the grassroots movement. It might not be time to start the viral marketing which is I'm sure what they're going to be doing something cool for viral marketing but as you can see the viral marketing that they're maybe not even you know trying to do that works cuz I posted that it got redistributed to a lot of websites um, if you go to Google News and you type in Kaijucast it comes up with a ton of results anyway uh, that was the biggest and coolest news Moving on to other stuff, there's a whole bunch of things from Sci-Fi Japan I wanted to show uh, talk about, not show you, because it's not a video podcast. X-Plus's lineup for October has been announced. Some people in the X-Plus group already knew about a lot of these, but Space Godzilla in 30-centimeter format. Daimajin, I've really got to start saying his name right. I know I'm saying it wrong. It's just like a habit I have to break. Daimajin is coming out in a 25-centimeter format. Ultraman Gaia in 25-centimeter format. Uh, they're going to reissue the 1962 Godzilla from King Kong versus Godzilla in the 30 centimeter version with light up fins. And, uh, I, uh, had to have the 64 Godzilla with the light up fins. It is amazing. Uh, I posted a photo of that up on the Instagram and of course on Facebook and Tumblr as well. Anyway, Those are all up on Sci-Fi Japan, and you can probably start pre-ordering those on your favorite websites like Hobby Search, Hobby Link Japan, etc., etc. Pacific Rim's DVD and Blu-ray release have been announced, and not only do they have like the DVD release, the Blu-ray release, the DVD and Blu-ray release, they have a DVD Blu-ray release. Ultraviolet collector's edition which I have already pre-ordered. I'll have the links in those in the show notes of course. If you enjoyed Pacific Rim, I I know that every time I see some sort of like tidbit or video footage that's like a behind the scenes thing, I just like immediately sit down and go, "Oh, that's awesome." So, that is going to be in the link uh, link in the show notes to all of those editions. Uh also, From Sci-Fi Japan, Bluefin Tamashi has opened a web store. And you can actually now buy, uh, I think they just have Godzilla, the 1989-style Godzilla, um, available from their Monster Arts line on their web store. But hopefully they'll have more soon if you're a uh, Monster Arts fan. I'll have a link in the show notes, not only to the article on Sci-Fi Japan, but also to the actual store. Earlier this year, this season, I guess I could say, Sci-Fi Japan had a uh, cool photo that was posted by Daisuke, one of their foreign correspondents, you could say, uh, of a really cool Ultraman rice display. Well, there's been some updated information about that. Basically, this one area of Japan, I can't remember where it is off the top of my head, but uh, they plant different colored rice. And so when it grows, uh, it grows into a uh, an image. It's almost like crop circles, but cooler because this has Ultraman monsters and Ultraman stuff involved. So uh, check that out. It's really cool. Uh, the next big thing to announce, the next big news item is actually more of a local event later this month, the 21st and 22nd of September at the Oregon Convention Center here in Portland, Oregon. We have Rose City Comic Con happening. Last year was the first Rose City Comic Con. And to be perfectly honest, I was a little bit skeptical about it just because of the history of Rose City Comic Con and its organization. But I was really happy that I went because the dude who runs it, Ron, super great guy, totally tapped the local geek environment. Uh, and Mikey from Chronicles of the Nerds. He has been really awesome and put me on two different panels. He gave the KaijuCast its own panel. We're not going to do a live podcast. What we're going to do instead is going to do uh, something to bring in the people who who might not know so much about kaiju stuff. We're doing a panel called The Kaiju of Pacific Rim, and I'm also going to be on a podcasting panel. The podcasting panel is at 11 a.m. on Saturday, and the kaiju panel will be at 1 p.m. on Saturday. Those are both the 21st, and that's at Rose City Comic Con. Make sure you check out the link in the show notes. Get your tickets now. It's bound to be a super awesome event. Some of the super awesome people that they have, they have Avery Brooks, who played Cisco in Deep Space Nine. John DiMaggio is gonna be there. That's the dude who did the voice for Bender and uh, one of my favorite characters, Jake the Dog from Adventure Time. They've got David Giuntoli who is Nick on Grim, which is a cool show. Also Flash oh. uh Sam Jones is gonna be there. I don't know why I did that, but you know what? I'm leaving it in for your enjoyment. Um Christopher Judge, who is in the Stargate series, is gonna be there. And Jewel State also is going to be there. She was uh, Kaylee in in Firefly and Serenity. And then uh, somebody I'm really hoping to uh, get some quality time with, at least just if it's at a table getting an autograph or whatever, is Billy West. Billy West is an awesome voice actor who did Fry from Futurama, but he also did Stimpy and a little bit later did Ren. Just super, super thrilled to have the chance to meet him. Uh, Billy West is, uh, you know, an awesome, awesome voice talent guy and I'm very very psyched that they're bringing him he was like one of the first guests that they announced anyway that is Rose City Comic Con not only they're going to have guests they're also going to have a ton of vendors they're going to have a ton of things going on it's going to be really cool so make sure you go to com. check out the website check out the link in the show notes to the website get your tickets it's not too far away and you know if you're going you better come to my panel at least the second one I, well, I would understand if you don't care about the podcasting one so much but the Kaiju one you know show that monster support. Anyway, that's going to do it for our news for the uh for the month. I wanted to remind you all that our Daikaiju discussion for September is the 1974 Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. I said in the last episode. This is a really popular movie, so there's probably going to be a lot of people who are submitting a lot of thoughts and uh questions and reviews and so far that is um actually true. So If you still haven't submitted your homework, you have a few more, you have like a week left to do it um, at the time of this recording. You got to send it in before September 22nd in order to be included in the Daikaiju discussion for the following episode. Now, having said that, we are going to go ahead and close things out. Uh, If you found us on iTunes or some other podcast directory, make sure you point your web browser to kaijucast.com. We have all of our episodes up there. Not to mention that we also have our Daikaiju discussion schedule. Things are about to shift around a little bit for that. I'm effectively rescheduling October's movie for another time because I just cannot do a Daikaiju discussion for October. I'm going to be in Japan at the time. There's just really no way to do it. You'd have to turn in your homework super early. And I want to say you'd have to turn in your homework like on the 12th or something like that because there's just not enough time. The last thing I need to be doing is scrambling to get an episode online schedule people to come over to my house and watch the movie and record everything when i have to worry about going to japan so we are moving that daikaiju discussion for october is canceled but hey you know what that extends the discussions out one more month and you know what i got a question for you guys hopefully you're still listening to me what else would you like to see in the daikaiju discussions we talked about uh we talked about redoing some movies after we've finished the entire list. But, you know, there's a handful of movies that we just haven't put on that list. I'm thinking stuff like Big Man Japan. So go ahead and send me an email. Let me know what you think about that. Please use the contact form on the website, which is also another cool thing we have on KaijuCast.com. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking about that. We are also on all the social media networks. We're on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, uh, Instagram now. We have a support page if you want to become a member of the Kaiju Corps. Still getting that stuff together, but uh, we've already got some awesome members so far. Big ups to the Kaiju Corps so far. There are corporals and captains. And we are going to wrap things up not by playing something from uh, from the Godzilla soundtrack legitimate universe, as it were. Uh, I was contacted by a listener named Nick, and he had blended together, made a special blend of two songs from uh, Godzilla 1985, which include Rajiro Kuroku's score and Christopher Young's score from the U.S. version. And so that is how we are going to close out episode 92. I will see you or talk to you in a little while for episode 93, where we review Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla until then, Jamata. Mm-hmm.